the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, he is. And good afternoon to you. Welcome five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on your basic uh, Wednesday, 17th day of May. Hope you're having a good week so far here at the, uh, the hump of the week, the midweek point, and uh, delighted to uh, spend some time with you. Lots to talk about on today's program. Coming up a little bit later on, Karen Roseberry was going to join us. We're going to talk a bit about what's happening in this debate over um, Mephipristone. And there's a lot of back and forth in relationship to a federal appeals court, a lower court, as to whether or not uh, the FDA did the right thing in releasing the abortifacient, or did it lack the rigorous testing? Well, we've argued that case for decades, perhaps. Well, now all of this, no doubt, coming home to roost. We'll find out exactly where things are currently as we get an update from Karen Roseberry with the California Pro-Life Council a bit later on. And imagine this. How about the notion of encouraging kids to do the right thing? You know, we all think about stuff like kids ought to know not to lie, to honor their mother and parent, father, to, to not to cheat, not to steal, right? All the, all the basic good values that I think we can all agree on. And ironically, most of them enshrined inside of a little document. You might have heard of it. It's called the Ten Commandments. In the 1980s, court got all upset started yanking them out of public classrooms everywhere. Well, a bill sponsored by a state senator in Texas is, what would they say down there? Fixing to bring it back. <laughs> Brad Dacus was down, in fact, and apparently did some um, offered some testimony in Austin on this very topic, and he's going to join us with details a bit later on in the show. But I want to start off with a reminder that we are less than two weeks away from Memorial Day. And while some look at it as kind of the unofficial start to summer vacation time, there is a more important and significant um, aspect of Memorial Day that we must never forget. And that is a day that honors the brave men and women who died for our freedoms and fought for our freedoms, because freedom is never free. And in fact, if you are part of a military family, you know firsthand the kind of day-to-day sacrifice that these families make for all of us. And yet, sadly, a lot of Americans, I think, today on an increasing basis don't really have a great appreciation for the kind of sacrifice that our military families make on our behalf, but my next guest is going to help educate us on that very topic. Jessica Manfrey has just written a new book called Never Alone, Ruth, the Modern Military Spouse 
and The God Who Goes With Us, newly released by Moody Publishers. And Jessica, thank you so much for carving some time out of your day to be with us. Oh, I couldn't imagine spending this time anywhere else. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, bless your heart. Well, let's let's unpack this topic that I know is very near and dear to your heart because, in fact, you are a military spouse. Uh, your husband served in, uh, well, you give us the background. What branch? So he has been actively serving in the Coast Guard for 22 years. So he is still active duty. And, um, I mean, I always say, oh, the end is in sight, but I never really know with him. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. And uh, this is not one tour and done, two years, three years, and I got that behind me. Uh, He he signed up for the long haul. Well, um, our our, our hats are are off to your husband for the work that he does in protecting America and and for the sacrifice that you make in – Essentially, loaning your husband, is that a right phrase? Loaning your husband yeah. to the uh, yeah. United States uh, to, so I can be free and be protected, our coast can be protected. You've literally loaned your husband. And, I, and I'm curious, my goodness, 20 years of this experience, you're a pro at this. But for people <laughs> eavesdropping that really don't have a clue, they think, oh, you know, they, they see the military recruiting posters, go and see the world and think, and wonderful, you get to take your wife and your family with you, and the government's going to pay for this wonderful trip, uh, but uh, obviously real-life experience is very different from that. Give us a bit of your, your, your understanding, your own life experience as to what these 20 years have been like in a nutshell. Absolutely. So my husband and I have been together for 18 years. I have lived in nine different homes with him, and I think that would be like a big misconception. You know, people think of the Coast Guard as simply just on the coast, or they don't necessarily deploy, but my husband has been on multiple cutters, you know, the most recent one when our son was, you know, three and a half, and, you know, he would be gone two months, home seven weeks, gone, and it was constant back and forth, and so we've moved a lot. I think he has only completed a tour, which is an assignment, if you will, twice in the 18 years we've been together, and actually, I think those are the only times the whole time he's been in the Coast Guard. And that definitely adds significant stress, right? Maybe not necessarily for him all the way because, you know, he has a job. He knows what he's doing. He knows his role and his mission. But, you know, the family has to kind of pick up and go unplanned, new schools, new jobs. And it's um, it's definitely a stressor. I would not change it. I always say the military has given me the most beautiful and the hardest challenges of my life. But I would not have it under any other way. You know, there's so much of this that is unrelatable for the average American. I mean, uh, you know, we've heard the phrase, wait till your father gets home. But in the case of a military family, that doesn't work too good if you're using that as kind of a a means of putting the fear of God or daddy into the hearts of the kids, because wait till your father comes home could be, you know, seven months from now, or or likewise mom, Mm -hmm. if if she is in active deployment. And, And along with that, you mentioned about moving Nine times. I have to tell you, I'm, um, well, I'm in my sixth uh, decade here. I won't be uh, elaborating any further than that. And I have moved, let me think, once, twice. I've moved exactly four times in my entire life, all of it within a 15-mile radius. And I will tell you, Jessica, if you came to me tomorrow and said, here are the keys to a brand new house, it's all yours, um, I would say if I was going to sell my existing home, I would put the sign in the front lawn that said, 
home for sale, including all the contents. I'd pack a suitcase, <laughs> a roller bag, really, and that would be it. I, I can't imagine what that means, not just in terms of the, the, the hassle of new time, new day, new school, new community, the, the inability to really lay down roots, in a sense, and to build relationships that can be supportive mm-hmm. for you as you are kind of, you know, there are full-time widows who've lost a, a husband in the military, and then they're what I often hear referred to as the, the, the part-time military widow who is on her own, raising the kids, taking care of all the day-to-day stuff while dad is off on deployment, but not, not having the ability to lay down strong roots in a community, let alone build community with people in a local church, for example, that's really got to be painful. It is, and I'm glad you brought up the local church because, you know, this is probably one of our biggest struggles, Um, and I think that this is common, a common theme. I've lived in places where it was a bigger military area, maybe there was an Air Force base or Army base, and so we were pretty strong in that community, and then I've lived in places where it was more, it was smaller, and it was... um, you know, just your average everyday civilians. And a lot of times for those folks, it's really hard for them to open their hearts and let us in because they know we're temporary and that includes the church. Maybe we were welcomed and I'm using air quotes, but we weren't really feeling a sense of belonging. Um, And so there's a big difference. So I would challenge the church, you know, it's more than being patriotic and recognizing the people who are serving in your community and their families but truly, truly seeing them and opening your arms to them. Is it hard, Jessica, to, to I mean, you're, you're alluding to the notion that it's, it's hard to find a connection, but even if you can find one, to make one that has any real um, depth to it because the lifestyle of somebody in full-time military service to the country versus, you know, the typical civilian is so different. There's so much that we don't know, can't relate to, that I would imagine mm-hmm. that uh, along with, you know, I, I can't relate to you, and then if I really make an effort to, well, you're going to be moving in 18 months from now anyway, so why bother? Is it really difficult mm-hmm. to make that kind of, commu- have that sense of community, make that connection? Definitely. And I would say it's harder for younger, you know, spouses. At this point, I always joke that I am seasoned, right? And I actually had a friend the other day, instead of calling herself a seasoned spouse, she said, well marinated, and I am loving that. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, what I take from that, you know, for me, like my closest friends live nowhere near me. You know, they are a FaceTime away. I'm lucky if I get to see them, you know, once a year. But I'm all in on making connections and building community. You know, we're lucky. We're on the tail end of, of, of service, right? We're not planning to move anymore. We found our stopping point, and that's wonderful. But for the brand-new spouse that has no idea and is ripped away from anything that she, she or he has known community-wise, it's a very lonely existence. You know, if you look at the statistics, the military community has higher rates of anxiety, depression, you know, substance use and misuse because they're looking for a way to cope. I personally think a lot of it is traced back to loneliness, and it's not necessarily just because the service member is often deployed or gone at school, but it's just the whole disconnect, right? We're, we're far more underemployed 
you know, or not employed at all, you know, we're isolated and, and don't have a sense of belonging, whether that's in the local church or the community that we're residing in. And I think all of that has really detrimental effects. Oh, undoubtedly so. And the other notion, too, is, is adding to that the instability that the kids feel, so that mom is not just trying to ha- kind of keep, you know, home and household together and deal with her own sense of a, of a lack of a support system. And then for the kids, I mean, my goodness, you're in a different school, different friends every two years. Wow, what that's got to do to destabilize a sense of, of safety in a, in, in a real way for, for a child is has got to be incredible. And I want to have you talk about that when we come back after a brief timeout. Jessica Manfrey is with us today. Her new book is called Never Alone, Ruth, the Modern Military Spouse and the God Who Goes With Us, newly released by Moody Publishers. You can get it through the usual suspects, Bay Area Christian bookstores. You can also order it, I would imagine, online at Amazon.com or information through Jessica's website at Jessica Manfrey, M-A-N-F-R-E, jessicamanfrey.com. What it's like for a military spouse to raise military kids and all that complicates that? We'll talk about that next as our conversation with Jessica Manfrey continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Jessica Manfrey, author of Never Alone, Ruth, the Modern Military Spouse, and the God Who Goes With Us, newly released by Moody Publishers. Jessica, we delineated some of your own challenges as uh, the wife of a uh, a full-time, now career military man, but that doesn't begin to describe the challenges that kids face. And, And I would imagine for a parent, wow, you're trying to not only hold things together for yourself emotionally with the instability and the moving about and the lack of the support system and and having a spouse that can frequently be away for, you know, five, six, seven months at a time. But then along with that, those same senses of being disconnected and destabilized that kids are feeling. And now here you as as mom trying to kind of compensate for that. That's got to be a really, really hard job. It is. It absolutely is. And we're feeling it now. You know, my, my oldest is 12 years old. And, um, you know, at this point, he has been to preschool. He has been in two different elementary schools and now like a pre-middle school. And it, it's been a lot. Um, I will say is that we made a commitment as a couple that my son would only have one middle school and one high school. I know how formative those years are, and it was just really important to me that we we made that happen. And so that's something that we're honoring. And it it really is the perfect timing because we're currently in North Carolina, and when we got here, he brought it up. He's like, I'm really sad. I miss my friends. Like, I don't want to not go to high school with my friends. And I'm like, okay, buddy, well, you know, good for you. You will not have to worry about that. But not everybody is as lucky, right? They don't have that option. Um. But it is, it is impactful, and I, I would encourage your readers, if they want to understand pain points behind the military life, to go to Boost Our Family Survey. They just released the results for this year, and um, 17% of our military kids are in counseling, 17%. Um, and that was a, a pretty you know, startling number. It doesn't really surprise me, just given the nature of what they go through. And then I try and think about all the kids who maybe aren't getting help because they're not voicing what they're going through because maybe they don't want 
mom or dad to be any more upset than they already are because life is hard. So um, it's just, I think the more we know, the better we can do. Absolutely. And, you know, this ought to be a wake-up call for all of us that, you know, hear discussions about, you know, budget debates in Congress and, oh, you want how much for the military? Hey, no matter how much of your taxes is going to the military, you will never begin to even conceptualize the sort of sacrifice that are being made by families of those in active duty, families like those of Jessica. Jessica, you talk in the book, you use Ruth as an example, as um, mm-hmm. really a point of encouragement for, uh, in mm-hmm. particular, your, your 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 female readers. What's the big takeaway here that you hope readers will walk away with when they've read Never Alone? You know, I wrote this, obviously, as a love letter to veteran and military spouses, but I will tell you that anybody can pick this up because I think loneliness is something that we've all experienced you know, as a collective human society. And so really, I I hope that a reader will take my experiences, because I do get vulnerable about my things that I've walked through, you know, the clinical knowledge that I bring, because I am a therapist, and then use the story of Ruth, the study of Ruth, to recognize that even in the face of undeniable hardship, that God is always with us. You know, I love the story of Ruth and Naomi. You know, where you go, I go. And I just felt like that paralleled so well with the life that we lead, you know, as a military family, you know, with our service members, but also the friendships that we build, right? The way that we hold steadfast in our faith and carry each other, it really is, it's a light in the dark. What would you want, listeners, you've, you've, you've pulled back the curtain on a lot, but, but in this moment that you've got captive ears of tens of thousands of people across the Bay Area more, uh, what's the big takeaway that you'd like them to have? What's the big lesson that you'd like all of us to, to learn? I think, you know, as it relates to the military, you know, the biggest takeaway would be understanding that a lot of people will make the assumption that the government, you know, provides everything for us, right? We're giving a housing allotment. We're given medical benefits. And unfortunately, that doesn't even scratch the surface, you know, Everybody is feeling the housing crunch. Everyone is feeling, you know, the impacts of inflation, and that is leading to food insecurity for our junior families. It's hard. And what people, I think, need to maybe understand or wrap their mind around is if you don't have a secure military family, you don't have a ready force. You know, a a service member cannot be mission ready if they're worried about their home. And so, you know, you brought up taxes and the debates that are happening. I won't even, you know, dive into politics in any way, shape, or form. But what I will say is that when, you know, the budget is cut for the military, it has to come from somewhere, and it's going to come from programs that benefit our families directly. Um, And again, it doesn't even really scratch the surface of needs, and the military does not look like what it looked like 50 years ago. Do you want a sustainable volunteer force where people are all in? Um, you got to take care of the family. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's enough sacrifice that goes on of time and career and life and literally life and limb in some cases, mm-hmm. particularly for those that have been in active duty during the uh, the Afghan war and, and come back uh, mutilated for life. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, just the day-to-day sacrifices that these families make, if you think they're out there on some sort of a, a cush assignment and their every need and beck and call is being addressed, well, as Jessica points out, just the opposite is true. And, you know, mm-hmm. if, if we don't demonstrate caring for those 
who care for the protection of our nation and for the preservation of our freedoms, then fewer and fewer people will show interest in the military. And when that happens, mm-hmm. guess what? It puts us into an enormously vulnerable position. And I don't think anybody necessarily wants to go back to the days of, you know, selective service registration, your number called out, 18 years, finish your, your time in high school and head off to two years of, of required uh, conscription. I mean, you know, it's always, I, I think, preferable, except maybe during times of severe war, um, to have an all-volunteer army. But if we don't seriously do a better job of caring for these families and urging to make sure Congress is doing that, too, on our behalf, half, fewer and fewer people are going to decide to become uh, military career people, and only we as Americans can suffer from all of that. Mm-hmm. It really is an encouraging yes. book, uh, and and I I think that you know I mentioned the the fact that we're coming up on Memorial Day. Maybe a book like this might be of real encouragement if you if you have somebody in your family that's military, and you'd like to be a blessing to them. Um, a book like this can can certainly go a long way toward encouraging them. And the other thing that you talk about a lot in the book, and we can kind of end on this point, um, Jessica, and that is just the notion of demonstrating loving kindness. Elaborate on that point, Mm. if you would. Oh, it's my favorite thing in the whole world. You know, when I think about, you know, what could be changed if we're simply kind to each other, if we simply come back to the table, um, I think anything is possible. You know, I am lucky enough to run a nonprofit called the Inspire Up Foundation with two other military spouses, and our whole mission is to serve the military and first responder community. But we also stand in the gap for those in need, and we do this through acts of kindness. You know, as a military community, we're all over the globe. We have the power to enact change, and so do you. And I think it starts with, how can I be kind today? Is there someone I can say hello to that maybe otherwise I wouldn't have? Is there a way that, you know, I could reach out in a way that I was too busy to before? Uh, Ruth's story is beautiful. We know the end result. Uh, We have Jesus Christ because of their story. You know, the Bay Area makeup in terms of the amount of military presence we have here has changed real drastically over the last uh, 30, 40-something years. Uh, We used to have one of the largest concentration of military bases, both Army, Air Force, and certainly our position along the coast, the Navy, of anywhere in the country. And, And today it's kind of a shadow of its former self. But having said that, there still is a military presence here. And I just want to say, you know, when you see somebody that's that's traveling, that's that's you know in in military uniform, stop and thank them for their service, and you know to to play it pay it forward to show just tiny acts of kindness. I mean, you know, if you're getting onto the BART train and there's a there's a a military person that's that's behind you, pay for their ticket. If you walk up to the counter at McDonald's and there's a military person there ordering a meal, buy a meal for them. Just just show some small act of kindness to acknowledge that you as a civilian recognize the enormous sacrifice that that individual and their families are making on our behalf and that their existence, their work, their sacrifice makes sure that we can enjoy the life that we enjoy here in America today with the freedoms that we enjoy. I know a lot of those freedoms are being threatened from the inside, but I tell you what, you never want to be in a place where they're being threatened from the outside. And this nation has survived multiple occasions when that was the case. And if it were not for the United States military and 
Parents, make sure your kids read this history. If it weren't for the United States military back in the 1940s, I'm going to guarantee you, if you would even come about, you'd likely be speaking German or Japanese right now, along with the rest mm-hmm. of the world. That's not mm-hmm. speculation. That's just historical fact. So we, we mm-hmm. owe not only a tremendous debt, but a tremendous sense of gratitude to these military families, and let's never forget that. And if you know someone, as I say, um, who was in the military and can use some words of encouragement, particularly the spouses of full, um, full-time military folks, get a copy and give a gift of Never Alone, Ruth, the Modern Military Spouse and the God Who Goes With Us, newly released by Moody Publishers. Jessica Manfrey, its author, our guest in this segment of Lifeline. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you and your family for your sacrifice for all of us. We appreciate your time. You are so kind. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful talking to you. You as well. And uh, God bless and take care now. There's Jessica Manfrey, Never Alone, Ruth, the Modern Military Spouse, and the God who goes with us. It is 5.33 on the clock. That must mean time for a, a bit of a changing of gears here, changing of the guard. When we come back, we're going to get an update from Karen Roseberry with the California Pro-Life Council on all the debate surrounding Mifepristone as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, I mentioned at the top of the program tonight that the legal debate over the board-efficient Mifepristone continues. A federal appeals court hearing a case now. Deputy Assistant Attorney General Sarah Harrington argues that doctors who are bringing about the case against the pill don't actually say they've been forced to provide care that violates their religious beliefs. Now, three judges have heard the case so far, all three appointed by Republican presidents and have backed abortion restrictions before. Let's get an update as to where things stand now. Joining us is Karen Roseberry. Karen is with the California Pro-Life Council and serves as a spokesperson there. Karen, thank you so much for being with us. Where does all of this stand? I mean, this has been back and forth, back and forth. The irony is that way back, um, my goodness, probably in the 90s, the FDA rushed to, um, quote-unquote, authorize the distribution of uh, pills like RU486 and other abortifacients with not a lot of advanced testing. So I'm, I'm surprised that they're even in a position to continue to force this argument, given all of the complexities. Yeah, it is just incredible. It's uh, great to be on with you, Craig. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And, you know, the level of defensiveness that I think the pro-abortionists are facing right now just shows the the weakness of their argument. Uh, It shows the the indefensibleness of the position that they've held for so long. And and now their, their house of cards is starting to crumble. And so, you know, they are, they're looking for kind of various approaches of, you know, oh, well, you know, the doctors, you know, aren't saying, you know, this, these specifics, almost those sort of magic words that they have. But, but the reality is, is that when the curtain is pulled away for that, that approval of the abortion pill, we see that there were 
tons of cases that were excluded, and we see that that it didn't follow the the regulations and the guidelines that would normally have been in place. And we're we're starting to to dive deeper into you know just how the rolled back regulations are making things even more dangerous for women uh, as a result. And it, it's time to to take a, a better look at just what was going on with that approval. Yeah, sadly, so much of the emphasis has been on the end result, meaning the termination of the pregnancy, with not a lot of thought given to, well, the interruption of the of the hormonal process and, and what that does to the body. I mean, you know, I, I would argue, I'm old-fashioned, I would argue that uh, getting a tattoo is an unnatural thing to do to your body. All right. And, People certainly have an argument back with me about that. But but in this case, it's an unnatural thing at a very deep hormonal level that once you the body starts a process to essentially terminate that process, I'm not referring to the baby as much as I am the yeah. hormonal aspect of it, um, has got to have side effects on a woman's body. And how many cases where we've heard women that have used these types of abortifacients in the past, one, two, three, four occasions, then they meet the man of their dreams, okay, I'm ready to have a kid, whoops, infertile. Sadly, you know, we, we do see that too much. And and the other part of this that's just been, you know, I think very reckless is there were no studies that, that were done whatsoever on the effects of this drug for those who are still going through puberty. Uh, and I mean, not that that is necessarily even for sure going to be the, the delineating factor. I think you're right. Anytime you cut off hormones during a natural process for biological functions to be taking place, but the fact that during puberty there's already, you know, changes in hormone cycles, and then to interrupt that even further with this type of drug, the, the side effects, we just have no concept. We have, we have no data even to, to evaluate this. And so now you have this happening to younger women, oftentimes, you know, like under the age of 18, who are being permitted to take this, and the side effects have never even been studied for what they might be facing, exactly like you're saying, 5, 10, you know, 15 years later when they, they make a, a, you know, a different decision and want to make different choices in their life. And we're not giving women good information, good facts, good bases for, for even making their decisions. And, and when we try to present that, there is just this screaming of, oh, no, we know it's safe, we know it's safe. Well, how do you know it's safe when you haven't actually tested it for these particular conditions and these particular variables and, and these particular environments? You know, and it's funny because there's been so much debate over um, injections and things of this sort that have not had a, a long-term trial. And, you know, oddly, there was very few that protested the release of this particular abortifacient and others similar to it that also lacked a long-term double-blind trial and following patients around for X number of years to really get an understanding of what the long-term impact... We know the short-term impact for the child. What's the long-term impact going to be for the mother? We've never really answered those questions, and I have to imagine that's because we don't really want to know the answers, do we? I, I think you're absolutely right. There is a, a willful ignorance that is taking place, and it, it 
it does a disservice to women. I mean, and we, we see this when we look at longitudinal studies that, that show that there are upticks and, and rises in ER visits that have resulted with women going in hemorrhaging. And there, there have been reports in cases where they're told to basically report that they're simply having a miscarriage, that there's no need to, you know, convey or communicate what brought on that, that miscarriage and that it, it was an induced you know, miscarriage, which we call abortion. I mean, let me me interrupt, Karen. I mean, talk about sending a doctor down a rabbit hole (laughs) and, and, and then potentially giving a misdiagnosis because the patient who want to know gives misinformation that could lead the doctor to not find something he or she should be looking for that could have a significant health risk to the mother. I mean, that just says to me that at the end, a lot of this is all about you know the, the, any means to the end. If the if the if the if the end goal here is termination of the pregnancy, whether or not a woman really ends up suffering as a result a week later, a month later, a year later, ten years later, who cares? I mean, that seems to be the attitude. Absolutely, and we see that time and time again. We see that. We also see that in the fact that they completely dispel and discard the, the emotional effects, the, the, the mental health effects that we know are present when, when these terminations take place. Largest study ever conducted, 877,000 cases, very comprehensive from the British Journal of Psychiatry, and the evidence was overwhelming that you have increases in anxiety, increases in depression, increases in suicidal thoughts, increases in suicide, and those results and those studies simply are dismissed and told, no, that's not it. And we have Gen Z that's facing the probably biggest mental health crises of our time. Over half of them will, will say that they're not feeling okay for, for a variety of reasons, and yet we're putting them into positions and situations that are only going to be of greater adversity to their mental health because we have a political agenda that's being pushed by those who will reject truth in every way, shape, and form, even if it hurts women. Even if it even if it hurts the very individuals, the very portion of our of our society, and fifty percent last time I had a count, uh, even if it hurts them, uh, it's okay because it fits our agenda. It's it's sad and it's tragic. Karen Roseberry, thank you for the update. Karen, as I mentioned, is with the California Pro-Life Council. More information about uh, this topic and others online at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. R.G. Our thanks to Karen Roseberry. When we come back, we'll talk with constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus about a little something the Texans are fixing to do, kind of reversing, my goodness, uh, 40 years of bad mistakes. Let's certainly hope so. Maybe this will even catch on in a state like California. <laughs> Won't hold my breath. Lifeline continues on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back. You know, I have said many, many times down through the years as we have watched what unfolds in classrooms across the nation and the fact that increasing numbers of pupils are just out of control, driving teachers nuts. And, you know, when when you think about the fact that uh, 50 years ago 
the average teacher was concerned about things like, you know, kids chewing gum in the classroom, running in the hallways, not turning their homework in on time. Today, it's whether or not they show up at all, or if they show up, will they bring a gun with them? And, you know, what a, what a pity it is that there couldn't be kind of a, a, a daily reminder, a reminder that might encourage kids to sort of do the right thing. I mean, you know, is it bad to remind children not to steal or not to cheat on a test or to honor their mother and father? If there were only there were only some kind of a document that sort of brought together all of those life principles that a child could could be exposed to, and maybe we could put it up on the wall and they would pass by it every day and that would help to reinforce positive behavior. What would you call maybe a, a list, uh, maybe like 10, I don't know, good 10, but you know, uh, Dave Letterman had a list of 10. So a list of 10 things we could call it the 10, the 10 ideas, the 10 thoughts, the 10 recommendations. I got it. This is brilliant. The Ten Commandments. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, how are you? Good to have you with us. You know, you and I have talked about this topic down through the years, too, that as we have seen schools systematically remove any sort of of foundation of morality, and then here we sit decades later complaining about the fact that there's such rampant uh, madness going on in the public classroom among students these days, and uh, it seems as if the folks down in Texas maybe got a good idea. Tell us what's going on down there yes uh in tech texas uh is uh considering the passing of a bill sb 1515 uh which will mandate that the ten commandments be posted in every public school classroom in the state of texas uh i personally flew into austin i was asked to testify testified uh before the uh state education committee in this in the state uh the state senate uh, uh, they approved it. It passed the state Senate. It went on to the, the state House. It passed the state uh, House Education Committee. And now the state House has yet to, to vote on it. But it looks like it has a very good chance of being approved and becoming law in the state of Texas, uh, which I think would be a, a wonderful statement for students to be able to know where we came from, where do does Western culture come from. Uh, they may not agree with it, but our youth today uh, need to be able to understand where we came from in order to understand where we should go. And I think, Counselor, that's an important distinction because while I couched my remarks in terms of encouraging kids and reinforcing good behavior that kind of stems from you know a, a morality position, some might even go as far as to say a religious viewpoint, the reality is that the influence of the Ten Commandments in specific to our day-to-day laws here in America and how ingrained it is. I mean, my goodness, even in the United States Supreme Court, they've got it etched uh, there inside of the courthouse into marble. It's It's been enshrined as part of American history since our founding. And to, to remove this from the public classroom, as we've done so over the last 40-something years, really suggests that we're denying the, the historicity of the value and the influence of the Ten Commandments. You're absolutely right. In fact, uh, you know, the, you know they could, people could argue, well, no, but it's, it has you know, religious meaning. Well, you know, the Declaration of Independence you know, has religious meaning when it talks about that we're endowed by our Creator uh, with fundament, certain fundamental rights, with a capital C. Uh, it's, you know, we're endowed by God who created us. That's in the Declaration of Independence. 
So we can't be you know, what I call deophobic, if you will, or religiophobic, and deny our youth history and, um, and marks of where we came from and our concepts of where we came from uh, and provide them what I, a, a true, bona fide, well-rounded uh, education. Uh, of course, there will also be a wonderful residual benefits of this because this is our foundational values as a nation, and it's uh, we as a nation, as a culture in the West, value people not stealing, not killing, not coveting, uh, honoring your parents, your mom and dad. You know uh, some really important uh, principles that uh, that you know derive from the Ten Commandments. Uh, so it's it's a part of history. It's a part of our heritage. Um, it's about a part of just being truthful to, to kids to understand where we we came from, and and uh, it's up to them to decide the future of where we, where we'll go. Well, and moreover, I mean, to the point where people who say, "Well, you know, I'm I'm re- reading religiosity into this." Well, listen, people can pick up a crystal and call it religious too, and you know, for other people, it's just a rock. I, I think that's not the point. I think the point here is not only the the intrinsic historical value but moreover if you read through the 10 commandments it's an amazing thing to me how many people that are against it have never read them uh and maybe their <laughs> their behavior also suggests that but for for thinking reasonable people whether you are the most uh, zealot type deep religious person or somebody who only goes to church when you drive by one and nothing more, I don't know of many people without regard to even the differing religious persuasions, meaning whether you're Muslim, uh, you know, of the Jewish faith, Christian, or, you know, check the box called none. The principles delineated in the Ten Commandments are principles that all of us certainly benefit from when we practice those because it's just a good way to maintain polite society, quite frankly. And so some of this noise about trying to protest it on religious grounds, I think, is a bunch of hooey. But, you know, Americans uh, united for separation of church and state have got to do something to raise money. Uh, Let me ask you this, though, Counselor. Is there any language within this measure? And again, Clarity for listeners, we're talking about a proposal in Texas, not in California. This were in California. My voice would be so high-pitched with excitement that I'd be beyond myself. But, <laughs> but, but is there any language in there? Because I can see some people coming in and say, well, you know, there's religious uh, historical value to this. That's true. But, you know, uh, Mormonism, Mormons might argue that, you know, they see the United States as the biblical promised land. The roots of Mormonism go back almost to the founding of America. Look at the influence of Mormonism on the West Coast, their migration from uh, from Smithtown to uh, to Utah. So, you know, if we're going to have a scripture that is holy for the Jewish community and for the Christian community, why not too for the, the, the Mormon community? And, you know, from there, of course, we can go from the sublime to the ridiculous. What's the response to that? Yeah, well, I, I, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, the reality is uh, that uh, the Ten Commandments is a statement of, of deep history, of deep historical value, archaeological value, for that matter, uh, in the formation of cultures, civilizations. Uh, it's something that uh, impacted and influenced, uh, you know, not only Judaism, uh, Christianity, uh, Islam, uh, you know, and you know, and many other uh, sects and, and, and groups 
uh, as well. So it's in no way an endorsement of a particular religion. And I think that's one of the, 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 the tests, the historical tests that the courts have looked at, and having it in no, in no way, based on the language that's uh, implemented and used, does it in any way intend in to uh, proselytize uh, children? Uh, you know, no, no child is expected to have a religious experience with the Ten Commandments posted on the wall as a statement of our, of our nation's, uh, you know, heritage and, 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 uh, and development. And so uh, it's very distinguishable from other, uh, you know, attempts to, by other groups with uh, documents and things that are specific to just their religious sect, their religious group, i.e. Mormons, uh, for them to be able to, to make that same argument and, uh, and not uh, come across squeaky clean with regards to uh, not attempting to proselytize. It'll be fascinating to see uh, where this uh, winds up in uh, Texas and uh, just how quickly they line up for uh, countersuits. But uh, good, good, good testing grounds there in Texas for SB 1515. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, as always, my friend, we appreciate the time and the update. We're coming up on 6 o'clock from KFAX. And we're going to be back with more. Hour number two coming up ahead as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 